If you have your Bible or your bulletin, I would invite you to turn over to Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, we have been in Isaiah all fall, and now we're going to continue for the next four weeks in the Christmas season in Isaiah as well. But we're going to go back to the beginning and pick up four different passages that talk about the birth of Jesus. Now, you've got to remember in all that we say, Isaiah lived over 700 years before Jesus was born. And yet the words we're going to read week in and week out foretell that great event of Christmas. Uh, and so let's read today from chapter 7 and we'll see uh, a great promise of the birth of Christ. When Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Sha'ir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tebiel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says It will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience, patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. This is God's word. There's a lot of details in here that are historical in nature, and I'll, I'll try to Make that as plain as I can, but you can kind of see the heart of the passage, or at least maybe there's a few hearts to this passage, but the main heart there is in verse 14. Uh, this passage reminds us that Christmas is based on an astonishing miracle. Isaiah announces to Ahaz, who was the king of Israel at the time, 700 years before the birth of Christ, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and that son will be known as Emmanuel which is a Hebrew word meaning God 
is with us. God is not far away. God is not distant. God is not unconcerned. God is with us. He's right beside us working in our lives. Christmas is all about a miracle, a virgin giving birth to a child who would prove that God is with us. Now, miracles, I think all of us would agree, have fallen on hard times today for a number of reasons. I mean, one reason being a lot of people don't believe they're even possible. Uh, Lots of us think, well, today we know stuff about science. We know about technology. Miracles were just what people believed in before they knew all that, and now we've grown past it and we know how to explain the world without all that miraculous stuff. We can't believe in miracles anymore. That's one side of it, and, you know, that may be you. You may be thinking that if you're watching in or here listening. I'm glad you're here. I think we'll address uh, many of your questions. But on the other side, you may believe in miracles, but you are a lot like maybe Ahaz in this passage, or you're a lot like the disciples and the others in the passage we read about Jesus earlier, where you believe in the miracle, but you don't understand why the miracles are given. You don't understand the rhyme and reason behind God intervening miraculously into the world. Sometimes we think, don't we, that Miracles are really just God putting forth his power to make my life more comfortable. A little healing there, a little uh, financial, unexpected financial gift here. Uh, You know, uh, somebody raised up from their deathbed there just to make life a little easier to live. Notice what Isaiah is doing here is not like that at all. To think that about miracles, that it's just God's power to make my life comfortable, is to get it all twisted. God is doing something way bigger than making your life or my life comfortable. God is actually in the business of rescuing his people and rescuing the whole world with them. And the miracles of God are actually a concerted effort in that goal, towards that goal. Miracles mean something. They tell us something about who God is, namely, that God is with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. If we're believers in Christ, He is this morning working in your life. And so if you look at the bulletin, I want to show you three things that we can learn from this story between Ahaz and Isaiah. Three things about miracles. First of all, when is it hard to especially hard to believe that God is with us? We learn that. When it's hard especially to believe that God is with us. Secondly, how does God address us in that weakness? And then lastly, what does a heart of faith look like? All right? So let's start with, when is it especially hard to believe that God is with us? You may say, well, it's all the time hard to believe God is with me. I'm always struggling to believe that. Well, hold on for a second. I think you would admit there are some times when it's harder than others. And what Isaiah is going through here is a perfect example of those types of times. Look at verse 1. When Ahaz, the son of Jotham, and son of so-and-so, you know, it goes on there, uh, realized that Ramalia, king of Israel, had teamed up with Rezin, the king of Aram, translation, two people bigger and more powerful than Ahaz and Judah were teaming up to destroy Judah. Okay, so you have brewing here a circumstance that was way bigger than Ahaz's ability to contend with. Even Israel by itself could beat Judah. Aram by itself could have beaten Ahaz and Judah. To hear that they were teaming up to beat Judah caused Ahaz to shake all kinds of shaking, which is what it says there in verse 2. When David, the house of David, was told this, the hearts of Ahaz and the people were shaken 
as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Have you ever felt that way? Do you know what it feels like to have your heart shaken like that? Like, like the trees of the forest shaken like the wind? Do you know the t- types of situations that cause that reaction to come out of you? Do you know? I think you know. And isn't it true that it is very similar to what Ahaz is facing? It goes like this. When circumstances seem in our eyes bigger than God, we have a hard time believing God is with us. Do you see that? That's what, that's what Ahaz was doing. He saw a circumstance that was bigger than him, and in his mind, now you've got to understand, Ahaz was not a believer. He, he was, if you know something about the kings of Israel and Judah, most of them were not very good people. And Ahaz actually was one of the worst of all the kings. I mean, he did awful things. We don't have time to get into it this morning. I don't want to depress you with the list of things he did. But God was not ultimately pleased with his life of faith. And yet Ahaz, when he saw this circumstance that was bigger than him, he went to this place. If it's bigger than me, it must be bigger than God. And I want to tell you, that is a very bad way to reason. That's a very bad way to reason. And yet, isn't it true? We often reason that way. When something overshadows me, I think, well, not even God could do anything about this. It feels in me, when my heart starts shaking like trees in the forest, it feels in me like God must have abandoned me. He must not be listening to my prayers. He, he must, maybe he's not even there. Maybe the people are right. Miracles are not even possible. God does not even, doesn't even exist to take care of or to care for his people. Isn't it amazing that God comes to Ahaz to try to reassure him and say, look, this is not going to happen. Verse 7, he says, look, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. He's trying to get Ahaz to see. Ahaz, even though this is bigger than you, it's not bigger than me. And actually, I already knew about this plot. They were hatching to overthrow you, and I've already done something to stop it. I've already planned something to prevent the disaster that you're so afraid of from taking place. But Ahaz couldn't see it for some reason. And I think you and I can understand, we too oftentimes cannot see God and how he factors into what's going on in our lives. We're totally blind to it. Have you ever seen an, an old map? Like, like, like a hundreds of years old map? For example, a map of Florida. Have you ever looked up the oldest maps of Florida? What do they look like? Not like Florida, right? <laughs> I mean, you can kind of see that it's like Florida, but it's all like jagged. And I looked up a few this week. I mean, one, one of the things, nerd alert about me, is I love maps. I've always loved to look at maps and study them, old ones and new ones. I don't know why. can't tell you, but it just fascinates me. And I looked up some of the old maps of Florida, and man, it is obvious, painfully obvious, that when they first started mapping Florida, say in the 1500s, they didn't have the technology we have today. They didn't have the, the ability to have the perspective that we have today. All they had was themselves going around in a very slow ship, just a sailboat, around the coast. And as they went, they tried to draw what they saw. And what they came up with was a picture that looks nothing actually like Florida looks in, in reality. In fact, in one of the pictures, off the western coast of Florida here, out there in the Gulf of Mexico, they actually drew a dragon out there. 
Uh, and I love that they used to do that in old maps. It was as if to say, we have no idea what's out there. For all we know, there's a dragon. Don't go that way. <laughs> right? Because they didn't have the right perspective. Today, you look at a map of Florida. Every one of us carry many maps of Florida in our pockets. And what does it look like? Exactly like Florida. In fact, when you pull up maps, it's, it's a picture of Florida from the sky. Tens of thousands of feet up in the air. We get a almost like a God-like perspective on Florida, which becomes a perfect picture of Florida. This is what happens when we think circumstances are bigger than God. We are mapping out our lives as if we're Christopher Columbus rather than a satellite in the sky, gaining our perspective from God's word, which is a many thousands of foot in the air view. And it's not going to come up with an accurate picture. No wonder our hearts are going to be shaking like forests in the wind. We think there are dragons lurking under every single shadow. We have no idea what's out there because we don't have the perspective. And how could we know, right? How could we know? We're not God. And so the only way we can have God's perspective is if God gives it to us. And here's the key thing. If we receive it from God when he does give it to us. And what scripture says about itself from beginning to end is this is God's satellite image from above of what life and what the world is like. Use this in order to frame up your understanding of what's going on in your life rather than trying to just sail the slow boat around your life, sketching out you know, weekly what it, what, what it looks like. That's why this last verse there in, in, in verse 9, uh, the last thing that God kind of says to try to encourage Ahaz is, is really brilliant. If you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. If you don't have God's perspective, you don't have any perspective. Uh, literally, um, the word used in Hebrew there is the word aman, which is, sounds like what? Amen. Uh, amen, if you don't know, is a Hebrew word. It means so be it or it is true. Aman is a related word. It's like a verb form of the same root word. And so he literally says there, if you do not aman your aman, you will never aman. If you don't amen your amen, you'll never Amen. In other words, if you don't listen to what God says in a minute and really try to get it down into your heart, you'll never understand the world. I'm claiming something radical, by the way, right here. I'm claiming this. If you don't have faith in God, your life won't work. That's what I'm claiming right now. You say, oh, I don't believe, I don't know if that's true. Consider this. Uh, there's an author uh, by the name of Yuval Harari. Uh, Yuval Harari is a professor. He's not a Christian by any means. He doesn't accept the Christian message. In fact, he calls it a myth. He calls the Bible a myth. And yet, he wrote a book several years ago called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, which, which is an uh, interesting <laughs> uh, thing to think about writing about. And in that book, he says something very fascinating. It, it fascinated me when I read it. He said, even though the Christian story he says, is a myth. If we don't believe in the Christian myths of Jesus being born, Jesus dying, Jesus rising again, literally nothing in life has any meaning to it. He says that. He says, it's a myth, but it's a useful myth. You really should believe it, even though it's a myth, because it'll help make your life better. He says, if Jesus is not real, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what really are human rights? Where do they come from? 
Like, why does a human have more rights than a spider? He says, I mean, there's no real reason for it if there's no creator God. If he hasn't dignified the world by becoming a part of the world to save it. He says this, as far as we can tell from a purely scientific viewpoint, human life has absolutely no meaning. Humans are the outcome of blind evolutionary processes that operate without a goal or without purpose. Our actions are not part of some divine cosmic plan. Hence, any meaning that people ascribe to their lives is just a delusion. So why does he write the book? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and think about we got to think about it here. If, if Mr. Harari were here, I would say Mr. Harari. But if it's a myth that you believe to make your life better, but it's still only a myth, has it really made your life better? Here's what I'm trying to tell you. It's not a myth. 700 years before it happened, God told Ahaz, the wicked king, it was going to happen. And then 700 years later, it did happen. A virgin conceived and bore a son. And that son was called by everybody who knew him, Emmanuel. Because when they saw what he did and what he was like, they said, God must be with us. God is here. I see God. There really is a creator. My, my life really, truly does matter. Now, you may be on the other side of it and you say, well, okay, that makes a whole lot of sense. I believe in miracles. I believe there has to be a God who's involved in life. But maybe it is you're still faltering day after day in your faith because you're still viewing your life like Christopher Columbus trying to map Florida. I'm telling you, the miracles in the Bible, the truths of God in the Bible are a huge untapped resource for Christians. We don't look at them enough. We don't consider them enough. More on that later. But if our hearts are going to have true perspective, we've got to understand. We've got to understand. If we don't have faith, if we don't stand firm in faith, there ain't no other way to stand. That's the first thing. The second thing is how God addresses us when we experience weakness in our faith. Well, notice what he does in verse 10 to Ahaz. Remember, you got to remember, Ahaz is a wicked guy. He, he's a bad guy. God does not please with how Ahaz runs things in Israel. And even still, God makes an astonishing offer to Ahaz. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a what? A sign. Whether it's in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. That word sign is so important in the Bible. Uh, it's used in the Old Testament a lot and the New Testament. It was, in fact, it was used in our New Testament scripture reading where uh, the miracle of feeding the 5,000 Jesus called a sign that he performed. In the Old Testament, often it's called signs and wonders. And actually what it means is a miracle. It's a miracle that God performs in order, because it's a sign, to point to something else. Do you understand that signs point not to themselves but to something else? You don't go to a sign and say, okay, I've arrived at the place because here's the sign. The sign points you to keep going until you arrive at what it's pointing to. And so the miracles of God aren't random events just to try to make your life easy. They are a carefully argued set of signs to help you understand who God is and how you should respond to him. And God does something for Ahaz here that he's, in my judgment, I couldn't find or remember any other time in the Bible where God said, basically, you can have any miracle you want on demand. 
but he does it for Ahaz. Now, Ahaz doesn't take him up on it. Verse 12, we see Ahaz says, I'm not going to do it, which you might think, okay, he's just being very pious. He's being very holy there to say, oh, no, Lord, I would never ask that of you. you got to know who Ahaz is. If you know who Ahaz is, you know that is not his motivation. Instead, it's stubbornness. It's, yeah, God, I don't really need that. I don't really need your signs. I just need you to fix the problem. I don't really need your signs. That's more the attitude that fits with Ahaz's character. We've got to be careful of that same attitude in ourselves. Uh, God is often communicating to us, and we're refusing the method in which he's communicating. And then we want to give the excuse of, God, you didn't communicate. That's kind of Ahaz's thing here. Oh, no, I would never ask that of you, God. When God just told him to ask that of him. Pick a miracle, any miracle. Heaven above, highest of heights, deepest of depths. And I'll do it to assure you that I truly am with you. Uh, Miracles are given by God to answer the how question and the why question. Uh, When kids are small, they ask the why question constantly. My son Xander is in that mode right now at four years old. It's just why, 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 why? And now he knows because Stacy and I, my wife and I have said so many times, there is no why. <laughs> because eventually, you know, you get down to there is no more why, right? Why, 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 why? And now he'll even say there is no why because he's heard us say that. But I thought about this this week. When we reach a certain age, we stop asking the why question obsessively, but we keep asking the how question. How? How will it? How will it turn out? You experience financial problem at home, you're talking with your spouse, and your spouse just says, oh, it'll work out. Not enough money to pay the bills, it'll be fine. What's your response? How? You've got to actually show me, on paper, show me how it will just be okay. What are we going to do to make sure that it's going to be fine? Well, God is meeting Ahaz at the point of weakness, and he meets us at the same point of weakness. We're always asking how and asking why, and God says, look at my signs. My signs answer why I'm at work. My signs also answer how I'm at work. And so when Ahaz refuses to pick one, God picks one. And the one he picks is Christmas. The one he picks is the birth of his son into the world. The virgin will conceive. This is the sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to his son, and you will call him Emmanuel. He'll be eating curds and honey, which is the, uh, the, the uh, diet of poor people when he knows enough to reject the right and wrong. And he goes on there, that that last paragraph, to describe how Assyria and Aram are about to be destroyed anyway. Ahaz is so worried about those two countries. He says they're about to be destroyed. When this child is born, he's going to live in the land in poverty because the life as you know it is going to be completely upended by the time he comes around. He's going to grow up eating curds and honey, a poor child in a poor country. And yet he's going to be God with us. And he's going to come into the world to do what God has always planned from the beginning of time to do in the world. Now you say, okay, if, Ahaz came, if God came to me like he came to Ahaz and says, pick a sign, any sign, 
I would believe. It would seal the deal. It would help my heart. I would never shake again. Do you know what the point of this passage actually is? He has done that for all of us. Very clearly, this was not for Ahaz. Right? For a number of reasons. Number one, he didn't respond to it and God knew he wasn't going to. And yet he did it anyway. He said it anyway. Number two, it was written down in a book that you and I are reading. God wanted it written down. He wanted all the future generations. The New Testament quotes this to describe Jesus numerous times. In other words, the meaning here is not just a meaning for Ahaz. It's as if when God came to Ahaz and says, pick a sign, any sign, he was coming to humanity. And he was saying, you know what, pick a sign, any sign. And all of us, because of our unbelief, because of our sin, said, no way, I'm not going to do that. I want you to communicate to me on my terms, not your terms. And God says, all right, well, I'll pick one for you. Here is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. God has shown up in your life. The Bible even talks about how even creation itself and the events of your own life are like signs, little signs pointing to God. They're ordinary signs, granted. They're not miracles, per se, the way we would define it. But, but nevertheless, they're signs. I mean, it says heaven is declaring every day. The sky above is proclaiming. The night tells you about God. The daytime lectures you every day about God. Everywhere around you, if you have the ears to hear and the eyes to see, you'll see signs of how God works. Not only that, in his word, he's told us about all the, all the miracles that he has always performed. I love this thought from a, one of my favorite writers. He says, the central miracle of the Bible is the incarnation, which is a fancy word for the Christmas message. God became human. He became flesh. That's the main miracle. Every other miracle in the Bible either prepares for this, exhibits this, or results from this. You pick a miracle. Uh, God giving Noah a boat so that he could be saved from the flood. Uh, God letting Israel pass through the Red Sea so they could get out of Egypt and not be slaves anymore. Um, you know, God uh, helping David kill Goliath with a single stone. You name a single miracle in the Bible. Jesus feeding the 5,000. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, the healings of various sick people. The casting out of demons from people's lives. Any of those miracles, all of them, either anticipate or prepare, exhibit or result from the main miracle of God becoming a human being, to dwell among us and show us his glory. Listen to what this author says. The miracles of the Bible are not a series of disconnected raids on nature. It's not like God just randomly, boom, I, I you know, invaded nature. Boom, I invaded nature. You get a miracle. You get a miracle. You get a miracle. That's not the way it works. It's not the way God has ever worked. God has worked according to a definite plan. Not disconnected raids on nature, but they are the various steps, he says, of a strategically coherent invasion. An invasion which intends complete conquest and occupation. That's the reason why, by the way, Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus had to be God and man, not just a mere man. He's got to represent God to us, so he's got to be God. He's got to represent us to God, he's got to be man. 
If he's born of a man and a woman like you and I are, he's born like you and I are, sinner. Evil in heart, from birth. And yet Jesus was not born that way. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and in a miraculous way, he was born into the world. Why? This is saying because God was invading the world. An invasion he had been working on for thousands of years with these little miracles, little you know, excursions over enemy lines. Finally, God himself showed up in all of his fullness across enemy lines to win his enemies back to himself. That's Christmas. That God comes, yes, in justice, and he will one day punish his enemies. But for now, God comes in peace to reconcile his enemies back to him through the death and resurrection of his son. The virgin shall conceive, and, he will give birth, and she will give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. He'll be poor. He'll enter into all the poverty of human life. And yet, entering into that poverty, he will do exactly what is needed to rescue someone like you. Poor in your sins, dead in your sins, and in your trespasses. If Ahaz did answer God's question and did pick a miracle, do you think he would have picked that one? Probably not. Do you think you would pick that one? Probably not. Good thing God picked it for us. God used the stubbornness of our hearts against us, for us, right? In a strange way, he he used our refusal to cooperate in order to himself come and work salvation for us so that stubborn people like us could finally come and bow before the true king and know his healing power and his healing presence. That's the second thing. Lastly today, what does a heart of faith look like? God describes it to Ahaz uh, right in the middle of the passage this morning, verse 4. He describes what a heart of faith is supposed to look like. A heart that reads the signs well. It says, say to Ahaz, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. Those four things, be careful, keep calm, Don't be afraid and don't lose heart. Describe what a heart of faith looks like. The first two describe the the, sort of the basis of the heart of faith, and the last two describe the results of a heart of faith. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, My house, uh, the the main hallway where all the bedrooms come off of is a pretty long hallway. It runs a pretty good amount of the length of the house. And so at night when it's dark and you look down our hallway, it can be kind of creepy looking. And so again, I'll, I'll tell another story on my four-year-old. Xander does not like going down that hallway alone. And I don't blame him, you know. But what he does, he sometimes he wants to go down the hallway, so he asks me, Daddy, will you go down the hallway with me? And if I can't or won't, he's upset and he doesn't go down the hallway. But if I do, he not only goes down the hallway, but he goes down the hallway <laughs> with great style, you know. Chest out. I mean, it is totally opposite of fear. What is going on in Xander's mind in that split second between daddy will you go and oh daddy will go and now I'm going? What's going on there? It's the very things in verse 4. Let me talk to you about that and about how it might work in your life every day. When you see a circumstance that's bigger than you, which is just about all of them, 
instead of jumping to the conclusion, it must be then bigger than God, do these four things. First of all, be careful. Now, being careful, that, that sounds like it's saying, be cautious, don't go too fast. That's not what it means. Uh, actually, the word there is pay attention, observe, even guard something. Like watch over it in such a careful way that you're guarding it and protecting it. it it's a very, it's a different word. It's like, like British people use the word mind to talk about be careful, like in the trains in London, mind the gap. It says on the signs, the gap between the train car and the platform, mind the gap. That's kind of maybe a good way to translate that. Mind the circumstances. Mind God in the circumstances. What he's saying is this. You have to learn how to be a good observer of God's signs. And where that starts, of course, is... The scripture. I've already said that what you got to do is you got to get on God's satellite and take a ride way up top at that position where only God can get that perspective on your life. You got to go up there with Him and look down upon your life. You got to really search, observe, guard the scriptures in your life. And that will in turn open you up to so many other signs that you see. You'll be able to read the signs in creation better. You'll be able to understand your what God is communicating to you in your life circumstances better, whether he's trying to humble you or not, whether he's trying to bless you or whether he's trying to teach you a lesson. You'll, you'll be able to read all that stuff better if you've observed and minded the things that God has given in Scripture. That's the first step. Again, if you don't, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. And so you'll never be able to stand firm unless you first learn how to mind. Pay attention. The second thing to do is to keep calm. And again, there probably could be a better word. I'm not trying to you know, critique the translation you know, here because I'm by no means a better translator than these folks. But I'm just trying to give you some more kind of idea of what's being said here. Keep calm also could be translated rest. So the second thing you've got to do, you've got to observe, carefully guard the signs God has given and really study them, pour over them. But the second thing you've got to do is you've got to learn how to rest in them. You've got to learn how to take them and apply them to the specific circumstances of your life. That's what Xander does when he asks me to go down the hall. He's observed the scary hallway. He's observed me. I'm bigger than him. Maybe I've protected him at different times in the past. He's observed that very well. And then he takes that and applies it to his situation and says, if dad went with me down that hall, it would be a whole different hallway. And I would be a whole different Xander. And he makes the decision. That's what you've got to learn how to do. Take what's true of God and rest in it, even in the middle of scary, overwhelming circumstances. Apply it to yourself. All right, that results in the last two things. The first one is do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Um, if you're someone who's observed God's signs, if you're someone who knows how to rest in them and apply them, you also have a reason to talk your heart out of fear. I love how the Bible often uses this commandment, don't be afraid. In fact, people say it's the most frequently repeated commandment in the Bible. Don't fear. I love that it's a commandment not to fear. I love that God has to tell us not to fear. 
because that helps me know that I'm not alone in my fear, that God knows it, and I'm also in the same boat with all y'all. We're all very prone to being afraid. But if we observe God's presence and the sign of his presence, particularly in his son Jesus, that Jesus is with us, therefore he's proven that he's with us. And if we rest in that, we have something all the time to talk ourselves out of fear on the basis of. On the basis of. Let me give you an example. Uh, say your circumstance that you're struggling with is a relationship that's gone sideways. And you don't know how to fix it. That's a a very painful thing. It can be a very painful and frightening thing. What do you do? Well, talking to yourself to not be afraid may sound something like this. God, what are you trying to teach me here? Well, I know, God, that even though this person has gone sideways with me, if I come to you through your son Jesus, you haven't gone sideways with me. If they're also a believer in Jesus, you haven't gone sideways with them. It must be in this situation you're trying to teach them something and me something. What is it? Are you trying to humble me? Are you trying to reveal to me something about myself that I never recognized before? Perhaps you're trying to do that in their life too. Are you trying to challenge me with something? Because God, I know that you're a God who loves people even when it's difficult. Are you trying to challenge me with a difficult person so that I would learn how you love me better and that I would learn how to love like you love? You see what I'm doing there? I'm just taking who God is, I'm applying it, but then I'm also saying to my heart, heart, don't be afraid. Like the psalm writer David who says, soul, why are you so downcast? Hope thou in God. Why are you downcast? Hope in the Lord. That's what you're doing. You're talking to yourself instead of listening to yourself. As one great preacher once said, you shouldn't listen to yourself quite as much as you do. You should talk to yourself a whole lot more than you do on the basis of God's word. Now lastly, it says, do not give up or do not lose heart. Keep going. Here's the thing. Even when God's at work in our lives, that doesn't mean, remember miracles are not just displays of power to make you more comfortable. Just because God's at work in your life doesn't mean right away things are going to get better. As soon as you start observing God's word, boom, life is going to open up and you're going to skate through it. No, it's not the way it works. Oftentimes, God is going to be calling you into a path of endurance. And so not only does the heart of faith talk to itself out of fear on the basis of God's promises, but the heart of faith also buckles down and keeps going even when circumstances right away don't change because it knows that God is a God who likes to take his time. 700 years of time, for example, between when God said the virgin will conceive and when the virgin actually conceived. God likes to take his time in all of our lives. A huge part of the Christian life is learning how to wait on God. And that's an act of faith. That's an act of depending on God's greater perspective in our lives based on his word, based on the gift of his son, rather than trying to go around like Christopher Columbus and map it out ourselves. What I'm saying to you this morning, I wonder, is all of this describing the way you handle circumstances or not? My guess is probably not. (laughs) Well, you're in the right place. We're all in the right place because God knows our weakness and he meets us there. Don't be like Ahaz, first thing who refuses the way God communicates because you want God to communicate your way. 
The answer to that is too bad. God is God. You're not. Listen to how he's saying. Listen to him how he's speaking. And the number one way he has spoken is through Jesus Christ, his son. And if you think that is not the great way to speak, you don't understand. And you need to ask God to give you greater understanding. Because what God did there is he went to the highest of heights, and he took his son, who was in the highest of heights, and he brought him down to the deepest of depths, where you were and where I was, so that he could lift us up from that low place up to the high place where he is. If you don't think God has proven his presence with you in that, if you think you need more proof, go back again and ask God to open the heart. See, there's something of Ahaz in all of us, in me too, because often I don't live, I mean, man, I've believed the Christmas message for a pretty good while in my life, but often I've had that heart of God, oh, you've got to show me more, you've got to... Prove yourself more. You've got to do something else. Speak a different way. Rather than learning how to be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, keep going. Don't lose heart. Amen? Let's pray this morning.